0: Hello everyone, welcome back to Legends of Surgery. I'm your host, Tyler Rouse. Well, summer is basically over, for those of us north of the equator, that is, and it's time to get back to a fairly regular schedule of podcasts. Today we're taking on a very big topic, and one that could be considered the bread and butter of the general surgeon, inguinal hernias. Despite evidence that they've been around since antiquity, it's only very recently that there has been any success in repairing them. We'll follow the history and evolution of hernia surgery and meet some of the famous surgeons that made attempts to repair them with varying degrees of success. All that and more in this episode of Legends of Surgery. So let's start out with the very basics. What is a hernia? Most people think of those in the groin, but in its most general definition, a hernia means a bulge or protrusion of an organ through the structure or muscle that contains it. Certainly the most common ones we think of are inguinal umbilical, ventral, etc., that involve the abdomen. But don't forget, the brain can herniate with high intracranial pressure, where parts of the brain can be squeezed across structures like the cerebral falx, the cerebellar tentorium, and the foramen magnum. Intervertebral discs can herniate, and there are many other examples. But here we're going to discuss one specific type of hernia, the inguinal hernia. Have you ever wondered where the word inguinal comes from? The origin of the word inguinal is actually fairly simple. The Latin word for groin is inguin. More challenging is the word for a hernia operation, herniorraphy. I certainly struggle with that in medical school and the spelling of it too. Now it means the correction of a hernia by a suturing procedure. Hernio from hernia, of course, which comes from the Greek word hernios, meaning an offshoot or bud. The suffix raphi comes from the Greek word raptian, meaning to stitch or sew. So let's get into the history of inguinal hernias. Given their frequency, it comes as no surprise that there's evidence of inguinal hernias in ancient history. The ancient Egyptians, Phoenicians, and Greeks all described hernias and ways of treating them. Hernias can even be detected in mummified remains of the pharaohs Merneptah 1215 BCE, and Ramses V, 1157 BCE. Merneptah showed a large wound in the groin with the scrotum separated from the body, which has been inferred as evidence of hernia surgery. Ramses V had an unmistakable hernia sac in the groin. In the Hippocratic corpus, hernias were said to be the result of either drinking water from large rivers or experiencing a traumatic event to the belly. By the 3rd century BCE, the Alexandrian medical scientists of Egypt clearly advocated for surgery. Preoperative sedation was achieved by a root extract of mandrake, and hemostasis by vascular ligature. But sadly, the original transcripts were lost with the destruction of the Library of Alexandria by fires attributed to the Romans. Speaking of Romans, The writings of the Roman physician Celsus were some of the earliest accounts of the hernia and its repair in the first century CE. However, he did not differentiate it between direct and indirect hernias, demonstrating a lack of understanding of the anatomy and pathology of hernias. And don't worry, we'll cover that later. But his approach of closing the external ring, which would have a high rate of recurrence, was still the best the medical world would have to offer for nearly two millennia, with minimal improvements. In fact, the removal of the testicle became a routine part of the operation for centuries, as advocated by Galen. And of course, there was the usual quackery, demonstrating a fundamental lack of understanding of anatomy and pathology. These included bloodletting, of course, tobacco enemas, and special diets, all of which surely had no effect. Other attempts included inflating the bowels and shaking patients in the inverted position. In medieval times, French surgeon Guy de Chauliac, who lived from 1298 to 1368, borrowed heavily from the writings of the famous Arabic surgeon Albuquesis, proposing six different treatments for inguinal hernia, and his surgical textbooks became the standard for another 300 years. The organized and detailed study of hernias began during the Renaissance, with the famous French surgeon Ambroise Paré even devoting an entire chapter to hernias in his book, The Apologie and Treaty, giving a detailed account of the hernia operation in detail, and describing how the hernia contents should be reduced into the abdominal cavity and the peritoneum, which is the abdominal lining, which makes up part of the hernia sac, should be sewn up. Now, we covered the traveling barber surgeon on the podcast about lithotomy, episode 67, but some also repaired hernias, including the Swiss barber surgeon Pierre Franco, who, in 1556, introduced a grooved dissector, which allowed him to divide the ring of the constriction of a strangulated hernia without damaging the bowel. A few other revisions were made, but surgeons were limited by a lack of understanding of anatomy. Now, this began to change in the mid-1700s, during a boom sometimes called the age of dissection or the anatomic era. Many famous surgeons made contributions to the understanding of hernias, including John Hunter, episode 50, who in 1790 pointed out the congenital nature of some indirect hernias. And we'll get into some of those details in a minute. Astley Cooper from the last episode played a large role in the understanding and treatment of hernias. Not only did he describe venous obstruction as the first step in the cascade of events in a strangulated hernia that leads to dead bowel, but it was his monograph in 1804 that had the largest impact. In it, Cooper described the fascia transversalis and showed that it was the main barrier to herniation. He also showed its extension behind the inguinal ligament into the thigh as the femoral sheath and the pectineal part of the inguinal ligament, which is now known as Cooper's ligament. Many others contributed to our understanding of anatomy, names like Hasselbeck, Camper, Scarpa, Richter, and Gimbernat, to name a few. Now, their names live on in anatomical components of the inguinal region, and there are just too many to cover in this episode, so I'll try to tweet out a little about each and describe their anatomical contributions. Now, despite this advancing knowledge, surgery was still limited, as opening the inguinal canal was usually followed by severe sepsis and recurrence of the hernia. Like many surgical advances, inguinal hernia surgery had to wait for the advances of anesthesia and antisepsis before the next big step could be taken. Now, before we continue, I think we should spend a bit of time explaining what inguinal hernias are and how and why they form. And to understand this, we'll need to cover a little embryology and anatomy. Now, don't worry, this will be brief, but helpful in understanding the next phase of the history of inguinal hernias. Now, some of you may know the gonads which are testes in males and ovaries in females, develop inside the abdomen. But during normal development, the testes descend into the scrotum in the third trimester of pregnancy. Now, in case you don't know, the reason for this is thought that testicles require this cooler environment for sperm development. So one good question is, why did humans evolve to, quote, have your entire genetic potential contained in a thin satchel of unprotected, delicate flesh, end quote, as stated in an article in Scientific American? Well, not all animals did. The trait of undescended testicles is called testicond, and is found in whales, dolphins, elephants, aardvarks, and a few others. But maybe a topic for another day. So let's talk about the descent of the testicle. It's preceded by the gubernaculum, a structure whose purpose is to guide the testicle during development. First described and named in 1762 by our old friend John Hunter, again episode 50, It's a Latin word meaning the steering oar, helm or rudder. And here's your fun fact of the day. The Latin word for pilot, gubernator, is the origin of the word gubernatorial, as in the gubernatorial candidate, someone running for state governor. Anyways, the gubernaculum, and a diverticulum of peritoneum, moves through the inguinal canal and into the scrotum to become known as the processus vaginalis, which normally closes between 36 and 40 weeks gestation, eliminating the peritoneal opening at the internal inguinal ring. Now failure to close results in a patent processus vaginalis which explains the high incidence of indirect inguinal hernias in preterm babies. So let's take a more detailed look at the inguinal canal. Now the anatomy is very complex so we'll stick to the basics. It begins at the deep or internal inguinal ring which is a hiatus or opening in the transversalis fascia. This is a thin tissue lying between the transversus abdominis muscle, part of the abdominal wall muscles, and the peritoneum, which lines the inside of the peritoneal cavity. The canal is about four to six centimeters long and contains the spermatic cord in men, which includes blood vessels, nerves, lymphatic channels, vas deferens, etc., which are connected to the testicle, and the round ligament in women. Now, this travels from lateral to medial and ends on the superficial aspect of the abdominal wall musculature at the superficial or external ring where the spermatic cord crosses the medial defect of the external oblique aponeurosis. Now, external oblique is another abdominal muscle. Aponeurosis is a more sheet-like version of a tendon attaching muscle to bone. It comes from the Greek word apo, meaning off or away, and neuron, meaning sinew. I think we cover this, but the reasons we call them neurons is because that when nerves were first identified, they were thought to be connective tissues or sinew. Now, there are a couple of ways to visualize the inguinal canal. One is to imagine this canal as a box with different structures making up the superior, inferior, anterior, and posterior walls. The canal begins with the deep inguinal ring and ends with the superficial inguinal ring. Now those structures include a number of ligaments as well as the aponeuroses of the muscles that make up the abdominal wall. Now another way to think of it too is to consider the anterior perspective, approaching it through the groin, and the posterior perspective from the abdominal cavity, which becomes more important in laparoscopic surgery. Now one fun thing here from the posterior perspective is the description of the triangle of doom, the triangle of pain, and the circle of death. Now each contains important structures to avoid with specific anatomical landmarks. I just wanted to mention that. Now inguinal hernias have many classification systems, but the basics is to think of them as direct or indirect. So direct is a weakening of the abdominal muscle walls directly behind the superficial ring whereas the indirect goes through the inguinal canal entering through the deep inguinal ring. Now Remember the descent of the testicle and the patent processus vaginalis? These two are often divided as being acquired, meaning the direct type, or congenital, indirect, but it's not that simple. In fact, a combined direct and indirect hernia is possible and has the fantastic name pantaloon hernia. All right, let's get back to some history. We're beginning to enter the era of modern surgery. As mentioned, there weren't really any successful surgical options available, which explains the renewed interest and in numerous types of surgeries that would be developed, and also some, shall we say, creative treatments. Here's one great example I came across. In the mid 1800s, a man named James Heaton offered an injection method in which a secret concoction was instilled into the inguinal region and somehow a repair would occur. Claiming a 90% cure rate, the American Medical Association in 1853 demanded that he provide the contents of his potion so that it could be used for the public at large. Heaton refused, but it was still discovered that the mixture was white oak bark and morphine. Despite this, it was continuously used until 1891 when William T. Bull reported 21 cases with 21 recurrences after a year, and so it fell out of favor. At the same time, a number of surgical techniques were being attempted. These by William Wood, an English surgeon, and Vincenz von Cerny, the first assistant to Billroth in Vienna. Wood's technique involved taking the hernia sac, folding it back on itself, and using it as a sort of plug at the internal ring. The external ring would be sutured closed. Von Cerny was even simpler, which was to tie off the hernia sac and suture close the external ring without opening the canal, essentially the same operation as Celsus from the first century CE. But unsurprisingly, these did not stand up to scrutiny with most patients relapsing. In fact, like in ancient times, many surgeons in the 1800s left the wound to close by secondary intention, meaning leaving the wound edges open to eventually close by scar formation, thinking that this scar would strengthen the repair. This was known as the McBurney operation after the same Charles McBurney we covered in the podcast on the appendix, episode 58. It wasn't until an Italian surgeon published his method that the world's first successful cure of inguinal hernias was known. Eduardo Bassini was born to a well-off land-owning family in Parvia, Italy, in the year 1844. He attended medical school in the nearby Milan, graduating in 1866. But this was a tumultuous time in Italian history. After graduating, Bassini left medicine to enlist as a common infantryman in the army of Giuseppe Garibaldi, a general that was leading the drive for unification in Naples and Sicily. Now, quick note of explanation. Despite its long history, Italy was never a unified state until the 1800s. In fact, it wasn't until March 17th of 1861 that a united Italian kingdom was declared. It was in these battles that our protagonist fought. during a fight between the Garibaldi volunteers and the French papal forces to capture Rome in November of 1867, Bassini was stabbed by a bayonet in the right lower quadrant of the Abbey. After spending a night on the battlefield, he was taken prisoner by the French forces and taken to a field hospital. Bassini developed peritonitis and nearly died, but his condition improved, and he eventually developed an enterocutaneous fistula, where the bowel opens onto the skin. For five months, he convalesced in Parvia, and the fistula finally closed in May of 1868. And during this period of inactivity, he became interested in the Museum of Medicine at the University of Parvia, studying the works of masters like Giovanni Morgagni, Antonio Scarpa, and Giovanni Monteggia their attention to the minute details of anatomy would have an influential role on the young physician. Now, following his recovery, Bassini stayed on to work in Parvia under his former instructor and the physician who treated him, Luigi Porta. And of course, he went on a medical pilgrimage, learning in the clinics of Theodor Billroth in Vienna, Bernhard Langenbach in Berlin, and Joseph Lister in London. Now, As we know from episode four, Lister brought antisepsis to surgery, and this strongly influenced our young surgeon, taking these ideas back to Italy. After becoming the director of surgical pathology at the University of Padua in 1882, he undertook detailed dissections of the groin region, gaining valuable understanding of the anatomy that would allow for his breakthrough. After first attempting hernia repair in 1875, with two patients using the Wood technique and three by the von Cerny technique, Bassini found both methods inadequate. Using his understanding of anatomy, Bassini devised a surgical method that involved dissection of the layers of the inguinal canal to the transversalis fascia and then reconstructing the posterior wall of the inguinal canal in several layers. This represented a new way of repairing hernias. Instead of obliterating the inguinal canal with deep suturing of the rings, he reconstructed the canal physiologically, recreating the internal and external openings with anterior and posterior walls. The first attempt on a patient was made on December 23rd 1884. By 1889, he had operated on 274 hernias and collected data on 216 patients over almost five years. The idea of monitoring your outcomes seems obvious today, but at the time it was unheard of. Bassini identified eight recurrences for a rate of 4%, 11 post operative infections, 5%, and no reported deaths among the 251 non strangulated repairs. Pretty good for the age before antibiotics. Now, to put that into contemporary perspective, the Billroth Clinic at the time had a mortality rate of 6% and a recurrence rate of 33%. Bassini published this data in a German journal, Langenbeck's Archives of Surgery, in 1890. Unlike most surgical innovations that we've covered in the show, this one was actually quite rapidly accepted and was adopted by surgeons around the world. In fact, in some situations where prosthetic meshes are contraindicated, it's still in use today, as are two modifications of his method, known as the McVeigh repair and the shouldice repair, or the Canadian operation. So let's talk about them for a minute. Chester McVeigh, born in South Dakota in 1911, was still a student at Northwestern University when he and his teacher, the anatomist Dr. Barry Anson, published three seminal papers on the anatomy of the inguinal region. In fact, the repair that he created is sometimes called the Anson-McVeigh repair. And in 1939, as an intern at the University of Michigan Hospital, he published a paper entitled A Fundamental Error in the Bassini Operation for Direct Inguinal Hernia. Now, he spent his entire career in the small town of Yankton, South Dakota, the town he was born in. His major contribution was improving the anatomical understanding of the insertion of the transversus abdominis muscle and transversalis fascia into Cooper's ligament, not pooparts, and altering Bassini's repair accordingly. Edward Earl Shouldice, 1890 to 1965, was born on a farm at Chesley, Ontario, Canada. Now, despite starting his training to become a minister, Shouldice switched to medical school, graduating from the University of Toronto in 1916. Of interest, Norman Bethune, subject of Podcast 21, was in that same class. As the head of the outpatient department of the Toronto General Hospital, he investigated inguinal hernia results and found a recurrence rate as high as 20%, an infection rate of 20%, not to mention many post-operative complications. This would lead to him opening up his own private clinic dedicated solely to the repair of inguinal hernias in 1945. The Scholdice Clinic is still in operation, pun intended, today. I remember visiting it as a medical student at U of T. Now, amazingly, Scholdice never published his operation for fear that it would not be done correctly in the hands of other surgeons. But by their own internal statistics, they claimed a recurrence rate of just 1%. One paper on the biography of Shouldice did elaborate on the procedure to some degree. Now, as stated, it was a modification of the Bassini repair. In fact, described as a rediscovery of it as Bassini's work wasn't translated into English until the 1930s. The main differences were adding a second line of suture for the reconstruction of the posterior wall, use of a continuous suture rather than interrupted, and the incorporation of the cremasteric muscle as a cuff or sleeve around the spermatic cord. A quick note of explanation. This muscle partially raises the testicle, which is important in temperature regulation. The cremasteric reflex is a clinical observation of the testicle retracting when the inner thigh is stroked downwards from hip to knee. I read in one paper that some Japanese surgeons use this to see if the patient is under anesthesia as this reflex will disappear. Now, the name comes from the Greek word crema, meaning to hang. It makes sense. He also advocated early ambulation, walking, after surgery and the fact that he did it under local anesthesia certainly helped with this. Now, it seems obvious today, but at the time, it was standard to confine hernia patients to bed rest for 16 days. Imagine that. Now, I remember seeing robed gentlemen wandering the grounds at the clinic, and they have a common cafeteria to encourage patients to get out of bed for their three meals. The only TVs are in the main lounge, and there are group exercises every morning. Well, despite these improved techniques, like most things in life, there's always room for improvement. Bassini's repair and the many modified versions it spawned, one paper estimating as many as 80, created tension on the pubic end of the repair, which resulted in pain and the risk of recurrence at the site. This led to the development of the tensionless hernia repair. So the solution was to use foreign material at the repair site rather than the patient's own tissues. The earliest attempts date back to Henry Orlando Marcy, a Boston surgeon who recommended kangaroo tendon in 1887 that must have been hard to come by. He also experimented with ox, whale, and deer tendon. Others used material from other places in the human body, including a pedicle of the external oblique aponeurosis, fascia lata from the thigh, and even skin. As late as 1975, one surgeon recommended using vas deferens. Of course, as these are human tissues freed of their blood supply, they naturally degenerate. Another breakthrough in technique was the introduction of using an artificial material to reinforce the repair typically referred to as mesh. Now, the initial meshes used in the early 1900s were made of woven soft metal and were not successful. But it was a chemist working for DuPont named Wallace Carruthers who discovered a method for creating synthetic polymers in 1935. He is credited with inventing nylon, which led to the era of surgical meshes. Millick was the first to use nylon in hernia repair. Starting in the 1940s, a number of synthetic polymers were used in inguinal hernia surgery. By the 1960s, Dr. Richard Newman had performed over 1,600 inguinal hernia repairs using polypropylene. Dr. Irving Lichtenstein, 1920 to 2000, in the year 1968, first introduced the plug technique for femoral and recurrent inguinal hernia repair using a rolled cylindrical or cigarette Marlex mesh plug. This idea evolved to hand rolling more of a cone shape and even to pre-shaped mesh inserts. The mesh plug hernioplasty is now a widely accepted technique. But it was in 1987 where Lichtenstein published a huge series of patients with repairs using Marlex mesh that had the big impact. This involved over 6,000 patients followed from 2 to 14 years and showed a recurrence rate of 0.7%. This became known as a tensionless repair as the mesh was used to bridge the gap between the muscular and ligament tissues. Now here's a quote from Lichtenstein himself, quote, why should one attempt to reconstruct normal anatomy when the mere presence of a hernia has already attested to the deficiency of the canal floor? End quote. Lichtenstein popularized and introduced this tensionless prosthetic repair of groin hernias into a routine outpatient procedure and even advocated this as an office procedure under local anesthetic, which initially was quite controversial. He also proclaimed that hernia surgery was special and must be performed by experienced surgeons rather than the usual practice of delegating it to unsupervised trainees doing minor surgery. The next evolution of hernia repair was repairing them from the inside using laparoscopic techniques. Interestingly, the idea of repairing hernias from the intraabdominal approach dates back as far as 1891, when the Scottish surgeon Lawson Tate stated in the British Medical Journal, quote, I have the impression that the radical cure of hernia, other than umbilical, will by and by be undertaken by abdominal section, quote. Of course, dissecting the groin is far less invasive than opening the abdomen, and so this would have to wait for the beginning of the era of laparoscopic surgery. The trailblazer here was a South African surgeon working in New York City named Ralph Gurr. His life story is interesting, so let's take a moment to cover it. Born in Cape Town, South Africa on February 20th of 1921, he went to medical school rather than have to move to Pretoria and learn in Afrikaans to pursue his first interest, veterinary surgery. Gurr served in the South African Medical Corps in World War II before going to England for surgical training. Returning to South Africa, he worked at the Somerset Hospital, which treated non-white South Africans during apartheid. In fact, the government found out that he had agreed to treat a group of university student anti-apartheid activists, should they need it, and took away his hospital privileges. This led to Gurr emigrating to New York City, where he did the work that we're interested in. Ager did a study where 12 patients undergoing abdominal surgery for other reasons also had their hernias repaired from inside by using metal clips to close the peritoneal opening of the hernia sac. The 13th patient was a 23-year-old man who, on November 24, 1979, had a laparoscopic closure using metal clips applied by a modified forceps instrument. This showed no evidence of recurrence at the time of his reporting of this work in the Annals of the Royal College of Surgeons of England in 1982. Gurr and others would continue this work, later using staples, but it wasn't until 1989 that a prosthetic mesh was used for laparoscopic hernia surgery. One of the earliest methods was called the intraperitoneal onlay mesh repair, which was basically to place a mesh over the hernia opening and staple it in place. But this fell out of favor due to complications including organ injury, nerve injury, and recurrence of hernia. The two techniques most commonly used are TAP, transabdominal preperitoneal repair, reported in 1991, and TEP, Totally Extraperitoneal Repair, also reported in 1991, and showed even lower recurrence rates. Now today, the open, mesh-based, tension-free repair pioneered by Lichtenstein through the groin is still the standard of care, but laparoscopic approaches may be indicated for recurrent hernias and bilateral hernias. All right, now we've covered a lot on the common inguinal hernia, but there are a number of interesting and other rare hernia types, many of which are named after the surgeons that first described them. This podcast has gone on long enough, though, so what I'll do is tweet out some of these hernias with descriptions of the surgeon and hopefully some good images, too. That wraps up another episode of Legends of Surgery. I hope you enjoyed it. The next episode is based on a listener request. Surgical Technologist Week is coming up September 16th through the 22nd. We'll take a look at the history and role of these healthcare professionals who are often overlooked. Did you know that their role began during the World Wars? And while we're on the subject, we'll cover a bit of history of other members of the OR team throughout history. Have you ever heard of a surgical beetle or a dresser? We'll cover all that and more. Now, in the meantime, please rate the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download episodes and leave a comment there, or follow me on Twitter at Surgery Legends, like us on Facebook at Legends of Surgery, or send an email to Surgery at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you about your thoughts on the podcast or ideas for future episodes. And as always, thanks for listening.